0: Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and whether this is the first time you've tuned in or if you're a regular listener, welcome. Our theme as a community of faith for 2021 is Go Make Disciples. And today we start our first discipleship series entitled Seven Letters, Seven Lessons in which we'll be exploring the discipleship lessons in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In these letters, Jesus himself calls these seven churches to greater faithfulness. In this sermon, we listen in as Jesus speaks to the believers at Ephesus, commending some things and condemning something very critical. Well, as I mentioned at the outset, last week we launched our theme for 2021 Go make disciples. And I'm really excited about what God has in store for us as a community of faith, as we really step into what it looks like for us to grow together as followers of Jesus. But this week, we are launching a new series. It's the first of our discipleship series for the year, in which we want to listen to the discipleship lessons in the seven letters the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. These letters are somewhat unique in Scripture in that they are written to the churches, but they are written to multiple churches. It is the kind of a classic open letter. So the church at Ephesus, which we'll look at in a moment, gets to read what Jesus also has to say to the church at Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and whatnot. And the other churches get to read what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. This is designed for the churches to listen to what Jesus has to say to the church as a whole. In fact, each of the letters contains this phrase, to those who have ears to hear, let them listen what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a a message for us. And, And while the churches that we are dealing with, the church at Ephesus or Smyrna or Laodicea, were literal historical churches, and there's some allusions in the letters to the actual circumstances of those churches. There's also an element of which these churches are symbolic. It's almost as if Jesus took these seven churches as being representative of the sorts of things that the church everywhere and every when faces. And there's a few kind of reasons to say that. On the one hand, you have the fact that there are seven churches. That in itself just kind of feels symbolic, this this number of completion. Uh, But there's also kind of how the uh, letters are arranged. Uh, If you uh, pay attention to the first and the last letter, for instance, both of those churches, the church at Ephesus and the church at Laodicea, are in danger of being removed from the circle uh, of their having their lampstands removed of, of being in danger of losing their faithful witness altogether the second church and the sixth church kind of the inside versions those are churches that on the surface aren't doing really well but from jesus's perspective are doing great And the three churches in the middle are all in various states of disrepair. They've all got some things that are good. They've all got some issues that they need to address. And this pattern suggests that this is kind of, again, representative of the church wherever and whenever you might think about the church. Not with mathematical exactness. I don't think Jesus is saying that two-sevenths of every seven churches are struggling and two of them are fine and three of them are in various stages of disrepair. But there's a sense that what we encounter in these seven churches is typical. And so while, as I said, they're historical churches, there is a lesson that is representative for all churches to hear, and we want to turn our ear to that lesson. So if you have your Bible with you, why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, and I'll read the letter to the first church, the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So there you have it. The first letter to the first church, the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus as a town was uh, the de facto capital of the region. It was the Roman Empire's uh, province of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey for us. A very important uh, city, uh, both in terms of political influence, but also its religious influence. So, for instance, uh, it was at Ephesus that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was. The temple to Artemis or to Diana uh, was housed at Ephesus. They also had three temples that were designated to the imperial worship. They were designated and um, uh, given over to the worship of the imperial family. And, And those temples are quite significant because you couldn't just build one you had to get permission from the empire itself from the senate to be able to build those and so uh, ephesus was a really significant city and the church there of course has a letter written to it by paul Uh, it was uh, a place where the christian community had begun to flourish early in the peace and right off the the get-go right the the things that jesus has to say about this church sounds pretty impressive And let me just point out to you something quite important. In each of the uh, visions, there's a description of Jesus. And many of the the images are taken from the earlier vision in chapter 1. And the two things that it talks about here, that the one who holds the seven stars and who walks among the golden lampstands, are quite critical. Because not only does it emphasize his authority, but it also emphasizes his proximity. Jesus is not responding in these letters to secondhand knowledge. Uh, if, you've, um, if you've read the opening of, say, 1 Corinthians, we know that Paul is responding to a report from Chloe's household. So Paul has heard secondhand about something that he needs to address. Jesus here walks among the lampstands. The lampstands are the representatives of the churches themselves. Jesus knows because he is close. This is first-hand knowledge for him. And the the, the things that he lists that he is pleased with is a pretty impressive list. Uh, They have worked hard. And I'm sure that's not referring to their general work ethic in their occupations and families, but to their hard work for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. They have persevered and have endured hardships, again, not just general hardships, but hardships for the name of Jesus, for being a follower of Jesus. They've not grown weary in that hard work and perseverance. And, and that's, isn't that the tough thing? Uh, to persevere without growing weary. Uh, they have tested those who have claimed to be apostles. This was a, a, shall we say, a fairly common problem in the early church, where there are quite a few itinerant, traveling ministers and, and, and apostles, like Paul, who would come into a city or a town and speak to a group of believers or plant a church, whatever the case might be. And there were questions about authority and whether they're legitimate and all of those sorts of things. And here, we're told that they've been very diligent and careful about who they would listen to. We're told that they cannot tolerate wicked people. Therefore, I guess we could almost assume that they have a love for those who are righteous and a desire to be righteous themselves. Jesus then also goes on to say that, that they share his hatred of the practices of the Nicolaitans. We don't really know who they are, but they seem to be a group of well people who called themselves believers but whose practices did not line up with the gospel. And again, on the surface, that seems like a... I don't know, seems like a church that I'd be pretty proud to be associated with. One that worked hard for the gospel, that persevered, that was diligent and careful, that was um, pursuing righteousness and trying to shun wickedness in its midst. I mean, that sounds like a pretty decent church. And it probably is, until you come to what Jesus has to say in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. And it's important that we recognize that Jesus is not here saying, listen, you know, I'm going to give you a a B plus uh, for your church. And, you know, if you really want to kind of crack into that A range, you really want to move from a distinction to a HD, then you really got to get back at that first love stuff. That's not quite how it goes. All of those things that Jesus has acknowledged, their hard work, their perseverance, their, um, their distaste for wickedness, uh, their diligence and care about who they listen to, all of that is actually in jeopardy because he goes on to say, consider how far you've fallen and repent, and if you do not, I will remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus is amongst the seven lampstands, the representatives of the churches. And again, if you, you don't have to think very far about or very hard about where that imagery comes from or what it means. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. He says no one takes a lamp and puts it under a bushel or hides it under something. No, you put it on a lampstand so it can shed light to everyone. Jesus basically says, if you don't get this right, if you don't repent of having forsaken your first love, if you don't do those things again, then your essential witness, your identity as a church, as a community of faith, is itself in jeopardy. And this allows us, I think, to have a crack at what the discipleship lesson is, the first iteration, the first attempt to kind of nail it down. And it is that without love, all of our hard work, our perseverance, our attention to detail, our diligence, will not allow us or enable us to be the church. It's as simple as that. However, that's just a starting point. Because we do have to ask the question, what is this first love? What is this first love that is going to jeopardize the very essential core identifiers, the characteristics, that make them a church in the first place? And and biblical commentators and scholars uh, suggest that there are three options. The, The first of them is that this is the love for others that it is representative of the care that they are to show to other people. And, and again, you know, if you have a look at the, the list of their deeds, I don't know about you, but it struck me as it sounded a little bit like the Pharisees, right? Uh, I mean, the Pharisees worked hard. Uh, At following the law of Moses. They uh, persevered in that. Um, They could not tolerate wicked people. They tested all things, all that kind of stuff. And yet, they're continually being uh, challenged by Jesus about their love for God and love for others. We know, of course, that our love for others is a key indicator of our love for God. But I'm not actually certain that that's the best option as we read in Revelation one, sorry, 2 here, about your first love. And part of the reason is because I think if we're talking about a first love, then the love of Christ, the love of Jesus, probably is the first love. Now again, we can't separate these, right? We know that um, we are known as being followers of Jesus by our love for one another. And so if we claim to love Jesus, but we don't love people, then obviously something's wrong. But our love for others begins in our love for Jesus, Christians are not, strictly speaking, philanthropists. We do not engage in good works and good deeds because we love humanity. We engage in those things because we love God. And because we love God who loves humanity, and because we love God who desires to restore all things, and because God has modeled a sort of self-sacrificial, generous love to us, that's how we love and why we love. They're very closely connected. You can't pull them apart. It's not either or. But if I were to point to a priority, it would be the love of Christ, from which flows our love for others. And again, you can imagine that the, uh, the love of Christ may have actually been at stake here. Uh, that they had substituted their hard work for their love. That they had substituted their attention to detail and diligence for love of Christ. That they had forgotten the connection between the pursuit of righteousness and their love of God. And yet, this is a group of people who have endured hardships for the name of Jesus So it seems that her love is still evident there. And so perhaps the third option is perhaps the best. This is an idea that uh, has been raised by a fellow named Gregory Beale uh, in his very excellent commentary on Revelation. It's it's a very technical commentary, but excellent nonetheless. And, And Beale suggests that the first love here might be better described as the evidence of their first love that what Jesus is saying that they have forgotten is their public witness in the world. And there's a handful of reasons why he says that. One of them is because of the threat that Jesus gives if they do not repent. And that is that their lampstand will be removed. That they will no longer even be considered a light to the world because as Beale would argue, they are no longer doing that anyways. Uh, you see that there it's the actions that Jesus wants them to return to repent and do the things you did at first and while our love for jesus and our love for others should be evidenced in our actions it's this faithful witness that seems to be front and center in fact in all seven letters and all the way through the the book of revelation the assumed context is a group of christians who uh, have begun to face opposition and hardship because of their public witness to jesus And that that public witness and the opposition that it has brought is tempting them to find ways to not be so public, to become a little bit more private, to step back from what it is that Jesus has called them to. And that in this context, what Jesus has called them to do is to be the light of the world, to be a public witness to him. And and while they have worked hard and they've endured and they've persevered and while they've been diligent and careful, they have forgotten that their essential characteristic is to be a public witness. The temptations throughout the book of Revelation have been to compromise in small ways and large, to, to step back, to privatize faith, to make it an internal issue rather than Being consistent and true to that public witness. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13, Jesus, also speaking there, refers to the days that are coming when the love of some will grow cold. And in that context, the love growing cold is immediately contrasted by those who hold firm to the end. The sense of public witness in the context of opposition and hardship seems to be the point. Which means that, if we were to come back to the discipleship lesson, it might be better to frame it up this way. That unless there is enough public evidence to convict us of following Jesus, we are not doing the essential work of the church that unless there is enough public evidence against us, unless there's enough evidence in the public forum, in the marketplace, to convict us of being followers of Jesus, then we are not fulfilling our role as the community of faith that Jesus intends. Is there enough public evidence to convict us? Do we do enough as a community of faith to, um, to be found guilty of following Jesus? Is there enough evidence for us as a community of faith in, the, in our ministries, and our activities, and the things that we're known for in the community to point to the fact that, yes, we're followers of Jesus? And, and while that's a really important question for us to ask, it's also, I think, important to ask individually. Is there enough evidence in your life, in the public market, in in the people that you work with and live with, to point to the fact that you are a follower of Jesus. Again, because sometimes the temptation for us is is to internalize and privatize our faith, and yet there's a sense that if we're going to be the light of the world, we have to be a light in the world. And there's all sorts of ways in which I suppose that evidence could be seen This is not about being more um, outspoken about things or becoming more obnoxious in terms of how we talk about the Bible all the time or whatever it might be. But if you were never allowed to say whether you were a Christian or not, would there be enough evidence in your lifestyle to convict you? Is there enough evidence of the growth of the fruit of the Spirit? Of love, joy, and peace, and patience, and goodness, and kindness, self control? Are you quick to forgive? And are you quick to ask for forgiveness? Is there enough big-hearted generosity, self-sacrificial giving in your life to indicate that you're a follower of Jesus? Is there evidence in your life of things that you have chosen to do or not to do because you love Jesus? Is there enough evidence about how you treat other people because of your love for Jesus that leads you to love others? Is there enough evidence... Because ultimately, this is what we are called to. And our discipleship, what it looks like for us to follow Jesus, needs to be public. There needs to be a public, visible component. And again, I think this is not about becoming, you know, more outspoken or Bible-bashing people, or whatever the case might be, but about the opportunity to really live out, to be the light of the world. Because when we do that, as individuals and as a community of faith, then we are fulfilling our mission, fulfilling what Jesus has called us to do. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we go, I want to introduce you to um, the first of our discipleship menus. Last week I talked about the fact that we want to... um, strengthen our discipleship culture how we do discipleship together and without kind of throwing away the things that we might normally do on our own we want to begin to do some things together and so we've created the first of our discipleship menus Uh, it's a a list of things that you can do to more deeply reflect on the passage that we've just uh, looked at today Um, And you can find that in the notes section here on the online service, or you can go to our new website, uh, same address, gamiabaptist.org.au, and under next steps and growing, you'll find both a general overview of some of the practices that we're suggesting and some specific ideas for this week. Uh, there are passages to meditate on, a passage to memorize, some questions to journal about, a creative activity, um, an opportunity uh, for to, to pray around a particular theme. And it is meant to be a menu. So if you go to a restaurant and you get the menu, you don't order everything. And if you, you don't feel guilty about not ordering everything, you just order what you feel like eating. Essentially, that's this menu. This is not meant to be something for you to do all of. If you want to, knock yourself out. It's more a matter of saying, here are some things that might make it easier to reflect on this passage. And if we all do maybe one or two of them, it makes it a little bit easier to talk about what we're doing with one another. It brings our discipleship closer to the surface. It might be worth saying to someone, hey, you know, were you in church on Sunday? Were you online or on site? And did you take up one of the options from the menu? And if you so, why don't we talk about it? Make that part of our ongoing discipleship. That our reflection on Revelation 2, 1-7 to might be a little bit deeper, a little bit more profound, a little bit more, uh, kind of stay with us a little bit longer and shape who we are as followers of Jesus. So I'd really encourage you to have a look at it. Take one or more of those options. Participate with that. Not jettison the things that you might normally do. Be a part of our overall discipleship together. Unless there is enough public evidence to convict us as followers of Jesus, we are not doing the work of the church. This, according to Revelation 2, is our first love. Public evidence of our love for Jesus and our love for others. Let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Thanks so much for joining us this week. And don't forget that you can find our discipleship menu for this series on our website under the Next Steps tab and Growing. Join us as we seek to follow Jesus together. We'd also love for you to join us for Sunday services at gbconline.org.au at 9.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time for our online services. Or you can visit our website at gamiabaptist.org.au for on-site service times. Until next time, God bless.